Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who has dedicated their life to protecting, researching, and documenting the natural world. From conservation biologists to wildlife filmmakers, I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the Coffee Connection over on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. I'll be putting an updated post on this up pretty soon, maybe later this week, so keep an eye out for that. Today I'm featuring coffee from Steampunk Coffee Roasters. Steampunk very kindly sent me two bags of their coffee to try, and as usual I'll be talking more about them and who they are at the end of this episode. In today's episode I talk with Alex Cunningham, who is a conservation education assistant at Chester Zoo. We talked about the roles zoos can play in global conservation, the controversies surrounding captive animals, the importance of zoos in educating the public on the threats facing wildlife, and we also chatted about the work Chester Zoo specifically is doing for wildlife both at the zoo itself and globally. Hi Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. Um, We kind of start this off usually by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us about yourself and how you first got interested in conservation and working with animals? Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for having me on here. It's it's really great to be able to talk about things. For me, I think like most people in the industry, I was interested in wildlife from a young age. And luckily, my family spent a lot of time outdoors and we spent a lot of time on the water and just being outside created a, an awareness of the natural world with me. But as much as I wished to, I couldn't for a long time see myself working in conservation as I wasn't very academic and I wasn't really into studying all that much. So I think all I could hope for was that I would be able to get a job that involved me being out, outside, outdoors, and then I'd still be able to have that connection with nature. But after working in a few odd jobs, uh, studying courses that were really right for me, I eventually decided to go and study wildlife education. And eventually applied zoology at UK in Cornwall. And I think I did that because I didn't really know what else to do. I think uh, a lot of young people get to that sort of point in their career, they just don't know what else to do. But I loved living in, in Cornwall. It's a beautiful part of the world. Got to go on some amazing study trips, see loads of amazing wildlife. But I, again, I still hadn't learned to love learning which I think is a trick in most uh, workplaces. If you sort of learn to be passionate about something, you want to continue learning about it, um, then it's very rewarding. But after university, I still didn't know what to do. So I decided to go traveling, which is what I think a lot of other people decide to do. And while living in Australia for a couple of years, I ended up working on the Great Barrier Reef on tour boats. And it was only for a very short amount of time, but it was while being out there and talking to people who'd come to see this amazing part of the world. Uh, they were asking me questions about the animals we were seeing, the wildlife, and I was able to talk about uh, the, the reef by conserving it was so important locally for the ecosystem and globally for the entire world. And that's where I really sort of dis- rediscovered my own passion. And I knew that when I came back to the UK, that conservation education was going to be the only path for me. And after taking different seasonal jobs at various zoos and with conservation organizations I eventually managed to procure my job here at Chester Zoo. Amazing so yeah that that sounds like an amazing kind of uh, origin story almost it's <laughs> it's lovely to hear everyone's kind of start in in conservation and I'm, I'm 
think with kind of one or two exceptions, almost every guest I've had on the podcast um, has got their start in, in nature just through a childhood connection, um, which is really, mm-hmm. really you know good to hear. Um, kids still getting out in nature, uh, although that was a generally tends to be a, a longer time ago than my generation, um, which is is less less involved in nature uh, when when we're kids, unfortunately. Um, so I, I mean, talking of of when I was younger, uh, I first went to Chester Zoo with my grandparents in I think two thousand and fifteen, um, and I think that visit was kind of one of the catalysts that kind of pushed my interest in. Uh, working with animals and especially in taking photographs of animals and and sort of the first time I kind of thought um, I was talking about this with someone the other day I I tried to take a photo um, with my you know nice new uh, camera that I'd saved up for I tried to take a a photo of a a Bengal tiger cub I think it was um, Mm -hmm. and tried to kind of get the thank you Uh, for the correction Um, it's as I said, it's been long it long time, five years. Um, but I, so I, I think that was the first time I tried to kind of um, thought about photography and and how to com- that I was composing this image about of a of a tiger cub and trying to take the photo of it through the cage without actually through the fencing without showing the fencing and depth of field and and all of that kind of uh, stuff. So definitely a big catalyst in in what I'm now doing. Um, but a lot of people value zoos as uh, highly as educational institutions. Could you kind of talk a bit about your role at Chester Zoo and, and kind of wide, widely why zoos are so good for education? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you kind of hit nail on the head a minute ago saying that I, you know, a lot of younger people don't always get an opportunity to go outside as much. Mm. And we'll come back to that in a second, but talking about my, my job at Chester Zoo, uh, it has gone through a lot of changes recently. I mean, the pandemic has meant we have to adjust and we're going to continue to adjust. But out of existing multiple departments of education teams we had, we've now formed the Conservation, Education, Engagement Team. And it is quite a wordy title, but basically we're running workshops for a variety of ages from primary school up to university level. And we can even do um, uh, adult groups as well. And we're delivering them in our classrooms here at the zoo. And depending on restrictions, the lockdowns, uh, we're also visiting via school. We can go visit schools and universities. And the first time, we brilliantly can now run virtual workshops. And we've only been doing them for a, a couple of months, but they've been going really, really well so far. And for the first time, we can actually start teaching internationally. So later on, teaching a class in Nevada, which will be pretty cool. Um, but as to why zoo is good for education, it is a massive topic that um, I think I, I'd start with by always saying education has got to be one of the most important aspects in conservation. And although in some ways I think new generations are more knowledgeable on the topic of sustainability, on conservation, they know that there is an issue in the world, they know that animals, are their populations are declining, but then their knowledge of the natural world as a whole, I think sometimes is lacking in certain areas. They might not know the names of local native species. They might not recognize certain plants, even terminology is just, it's, it's missing. Certain words that I always grew up hearing all the time, I say to children now, and they go, oh, I don't know, I don't know what that is, sir. And I think that's just a lack of exposure to it. 
Now, that's not true in all cases. Uh, we've got uh, junior rangers here at the zoo who have sort of these big sessions and they probably know more about the natural world than I do. Like, even at a very young age, there's some brilliant young people out there. Um, but a lot of times in schools, we just find that these, these terms are missing. And when we think about what a zoo essentially is, it is many animals, often from all around the world, in one location. And I think it's easy to see that that's going to create an opportunity that wouldn't normally be possible for many people. So a visit to the zoo, and I know this from experience, can inspire these lifelong connections with nature. You're talking about your own experience going to Chester Zoo in 2015. That got you interested in you know, photography and carried on interests. And it is very hard to be passionate about something that you've not experienced. And the majority of people around the world either are not able to or don't have the chance to travel internationally and see all these amazing exotic species. Many people can't travel to see wildlife in their own country. And some people don't even have access to green spaces. And you know, there are going to be people out there who have a passion for wildlife just through watching wildlife documentaries. Uh, or seeing it on social media and they're happy just to know that the natural world is out there they don't want to sort of in, have these connections with it they don't need to go and experience it they don't need to visit zoos or go traveling to, to have an appreciation of it and i think it's amazing if people do that i think that is a, a, something to look up to and, and sort of yeah appreciate but many people are going to need to feel connected to the natural world and when i compare myself to a lot of my colleagues um, I've done very good traveling, but I've still been able to have experiences with hundreds of different species. I've been able to learn about them, and that is through visiting zoos. So Chester Zoo has got a, a mission, uh, which is preventing extinction. And we're trying to convince our visitors of how important that is, and we want to let them know how they can help us reach this goal. And I can only speak for Chester, of course, but we have had up to 2 million visitors a year. And we're able to engage with every single one of those visitors, either through our interpretation around the zoo. Uh, it could be through animal adoption projects or one-to-one -one animal feeds, or, or sometimes they're just walking around and they're listening to our incredible zoo ranger team. Uh, they carry out talks um, throughout the day, doing uh, sort of eight, nine, ten of them a day. And they run a whole host of other activities within the zoo. And by going and talking to these people, you can ask questions that you might have wondered for a long, long time, maybe years, not knowing exactly uh, the right answer and you just haven't got time to look it up yourself or you couldn't find it um, online. But you've got these people who have the knowledge who you can just have a chat with and ask, ask difficult questions. Now, like many people, I am trying to ignore 2020 for the moment. But when I'm looking at the academic year uh, before 2018 to 2019, we had more than 30,000 students from nursery to university level who took part in classroom sessions. We had almost 100,000 self-guided educational learners pass through the zoo's gates. And Chester Zoo were actually able to provide 35,000 of those places for free because we had this massive education project that we are trying to run, get as many people into the zoo, particularly aiming at people who have not had chances to visit zoos before um, or not have the chance to travel in, in the future. So we want to get as many people getting an experience um, of wildlife as, as possible. And it's all well and good to say that we're making a difference, but we do have to back all this up. Um, and we conduct research that allows us to understand the impact of our work. And then we can provide evidence-based recommendations for improvements within our zoo and zoos around the world. And that's also a personal note for me because
research is proving that myself and my team are part of that we're doing a good job and it allows our jobs to continue to be a thing. It means that we can keep doing it. And everything I'm saying right now is looking at the work we're doing just in this country. But we also work conservation organization, organizations around the entire world, uh, developing educational workshops in, in uh, Borneo. So we've been working with the Hutan Educational Awareness Program for over a decade, a conservation breeding center, and they work to conserve songbirds in Tankoko, Sulawesi. They're working with the Sulawesi macaques and we're helping with their educational programs. And one of my favorites is the Big Life Foundation project in Kenya, and they're looking after a whole range of severely threatened species. Now, it does sound like we're going over there and we're developing all these programs, but it, it's not. It's, it's a partnership. It's an international sharing of knowledge. And I think that is it. Because although we might be able to help, help in certain areas, we're learning just as much from um, conservationists in other parts of the world, which we're then using in our sessions here in the UK. Yeah, that was a, a great answer. Um, really important to touch on conservation as well, because... We are going to get into a couple of tough questions, but hopefully now your uh, your your people at Chester Zoo have okayed them. They should be okay to answer. Um, yes. Zoo is generally at a university quite controversial. Obviously, they've almost all started as private collections years and years ago, with you know very little uh, focus on animal welfare. And a lot of people across the world just don't think that animals should be in any kind of captivity. Could you kind of give us a rundown of why you think zoos are important and why we should have them for uh, for just general wildlife conservation? You kind of touched on this briefly just now, but kind of a bit more in-depth on that particular subject. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, is, it is a tricky um, topic, and I think it is definitely important to always think about it, not just sort of push it out of the back, to the back of my mind and think, well, I just like seeing these animals. I think what I'd say is, sadly, today, there is no animal or plant that is not affected in some way by human activity. And zoos that follow good practices and that are accredited, they can be powerful forces for conservation. And some of the world's most extraordinary and threatened species simply wouldn't be on this path today if it wasn't for zoos. So just as those conservation projects, both in the zoo and in the field, we sort of focus them on six regions. Uh, we got UK and Europe as one, Africa as a second, Madagascar and Mascarines as a third, mainland Asia, then Southeast Asian islands, and finally Latin America. So these are all the different areas that we're working with. That is with zoos and projects out there and also projects in the field. Uh, to put that slightly more simply, that's over 70 ongoing conservation projects in around 30 countries. And we're always choosing projects where our scientific expertise and our partnerships can allow us to make a unique contribution. And like I said, we have already discussed some, some areas um, where we're helping in regards to education, but we can also provide financial aid. We can provide training. We've got expert uh, knowledge from our researchers and our vet team, which can be vital in uh, field programs. And here at Zoo, we even have our own endocrinology lab. So we can study hormones, and that's going to give us vital information about the species that we have in our care. And even in the field, people send us samples, which we can then analyze. 
Uh, we've even set up a lab in a in the field in a, in a few places, but it all costs a lot, a lot of money, and we need to have a central lab sometimes, which things can be sent to. So when talking about the zoo, I think we're always thinking of um, what the public is seeing. They're not seeing a lot of what's going on behind the scenes, and the public coming to visit us is providing all these behind the scenes services to go ahead. Uh, I mean, looking at the zoo from another another way, it's a great place to gain education for people who are going to go out and work in the field in the future. So we've got students that are coming to study zoology, biology, science, and they're going to eventually go out and travel abroad um, and use these new skills, but they're not going to be able to gain these skills um, out in the wild all the time. There's just not enough placements going on. You can't just go out and study lions in the wild and have you know, uh, any sort of central area you, you go and learn about their biology in captivity, there's always going to be an aspect of it. It might not be in a zoo, it might be in a safari park, it could be uh, maybe in a, in a game reserve or, or places like that, but it's going to be, it's not just studying, studying wild lions. And zoos can also be a great place for behavioural research to be conducted. So it is, it is true that monitoring animals in the wild has never been easier because modern technology, much of which has been developed in zoos, me, uh, means that we can record these animals. But there's always going to be places that animals go, we can't follow, and maybe we shouldn't even follow because we might be disturbing them in wild. But in the zoo, we can see behaviours that are vitally important for allowing us to understand the species better. We can learn how they're interacting with their own species. We can learn how, well, well sorry, learn what they buy from their habitat. And then that knowledge can be applied to work them in the field when we invest in habitat management, when we are investing in habitat creation. And it can also make, uh, well, help us to make decisions on where and when reintroduction programs are viable. And I think one of the biggest areas or one of the biggest projects we think we're involved in is the conservation breeding and management of species. And it's true that it's a massive part of zoos because sadly, due to ongoing threats that animals are facing in the wild, we know that the survival of endangered species is increasingly more reliant on the sustainability of zoo populations. And although some people will come to the zoo and just want to see baby animals, um, we can't just breed babies whenever we want to, as much as, you know, they're, they're cute, adorable. It's all got to be carefully managed. Uh, Chester Zoo belongs to several organisations, but the one that controls our breeding programmes is called EASA, and that's the European Association for Zoo and Aquariums. And their specific breeding management programme is called the EEP, which is the EASA Execute programme. Now, there are hundreds of species in the EEP, but around 15 to 17 of them are managed by individuals here at Chester Zoo. And these people are known as the stud bookkeepers. And they're responsible for managing and breeding all of these species across the whole of Europe. And by managing these zoo populations effectively, they're able to maximize the chances of captive bred individuals being successfully reintroduced into the wild. So at Chester Zoo, we actually have some species that are extinct in the wild. And it's a term that's thrown up a lot but zoos really are now acting as a sort of lifeboat in terms of protect, protecting these species. If they don't exist in the wild anymore, you've only got them in captivity. You, you can't just simply release them unless you've got a habitat for them to go back into that is protected, that needs to be infrastructure in place. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the zoo, well, our zoo, and I'm sure other zoos around the world are all looking to try and to try and do this. But sometimes you have to focus on one or a couple of species at a time. Not every species uh, can have an ongoing conservation project that is going to be done in the next couple of years. That, for example, got the Sorico dove is uh, one on top of my on top of my mind. If we release that into the wild, we know that it's going to be very sought after by poachers. And at the moment, we haven't got a way to reintroduce these birds into the wild and not have them all immediately captured or poached. So we always need to be thinking about this. When looking at reintroduction, we also need to think uh, about their genetics. Um, and comparing the genetic diversity of populations in the wild to those in zoos, we've actually found that many genes have sadly been lost in the wild, but we still have these genes present in zoo populations. So if these species are containing genes that are perfectly adapted to the wild, zoos then need to look at how we can maintain them for years without changing them. Mm. Now, all these genes need to be represented in the population. We want the animals that came out of the wild years ago, as I said, to be reintroduced into the wild as similar to how they left it, that makes sense. And it is tricky because the easiest way to ensure a high level genetic diversity would just be to have a massive population. But at the same time, we need to look at space and we need to look at how many high quality, high welfare exhibits there are in zoos and make sure we can maintain these animals uh, at a high level. So Chester Zoo can't do this alone as much as we'd like to say, uh, you know, we, we, we just could operate by ourselves and we can manage everything. Um, having that expansive network of zoos means that we're going to have more resources, more space, more time, you know, hundreds potentially of dedicated conservationists that are going to be working together. And I did say we're part of EASA, but we're also part of BIASA, which is the British and Irish Association for Zoos Aquarium. We're part of WAASA, the World Organization for Zoos Aquariums. And that's a huge amount of conservationists who are going to be working together for global wildlife conservation. And if you think about all those resources, if, if zoos weren't around, these resources wouldn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant answer. Um, because it is it is a tricky topic to talk about. It's a tricky topic to kind of breach. Um, I had the the privilege of interviewing James Muenda um yeah, yeah. last season, who's who's one of the um rangers who is in charge of of keeping um taking care of the last two northern white rhinos left on the planet, and we were talking a lot about kind of human intervention. You know, there's not really there's unfortunately humans have driven a lot of species to the point where we have to intervene uh, in their survival and and help them um and that's a tricky paradox to get your head around you know we've we've both, our species has both um driven them to that brink and then similarly is, is trying to save them um and they can't really save them without us um they can't really be yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky topic, um, but I thought I think you answered that brilliantly, and hopefully a lot of people who um, listen to this and weren't quite clued in about the the proper role in the zoos have an exit to conservation, um, hopefully will will be able to learn a bit more now. Um, keeping kind of on the theme of captive animals, I think the the issue that a lot of people have with zoos is. Um, keeping megafauna in captivity sort of big big animals like polar bears mm. elephants tigers lions um they say it limits their natural range which kind of obviously does 
and that it's kind of cruel uh, in in people's eyes to keep such large animals in in cramped conditions away from the natural habitat. I think this is a big thing, especially with polar bears in, in certain zoos, because obviously they're usually kept in places that aren't actually as cold as, as they need it to be or as um, in, in the natural habitat at all. Kind of what's your take on this, your honest opinion um, as someone who works at a zoo, but also as just just a person as a, as a human, really? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a brilliant question. And I think it's something that you always need to be rethinking about um, and don't take it as a, there's one rule for all zoos. Um, I've been to many zoos and I've gone, oh, I don't like how this place is run, but I haven't gone, I hate all zoos. I've just gone, right, it, unfortunately, in conservation, things are not often black and white. There's a lot of gray and in conservation, I think there's a lot of polarization I think it is a problem because it starts putting people on one side or another and they lose track of the overall goal. But with you know, big megafauna, polar bears, elephants, things like this, well, we don't have any polar bears at Chester Zoo, not since the 1960s. Uh, there are zoos in the UK and that do house polar bears. And similar to any large animals, large carnivores, I'd say you've always got to consider the animal's welfare first, and secondly, the role it's going to play in conservation, the conservation of its species, and then the conservation of its wild environment. So polar bears are both a keystone species, they're also an umbrella species. So they're vital to maintaining a balance in their ecosystem, and also by managing main threats to polar bears, which for polar bears, there's quite, quite a few threats, but I suppose the, the biggest one is going to be habitat loss through the melting of sea ice. That's going to benefit any species within the environment, not to mention that when it comes to melting of sea ice and climate change, it's going to benefit every other species on the planet. Um, it is also noting that with less habitat, human wildlife conflict is increasing. You're getting things like so-called problem bears, um, which obviously if we take their environment, they're going to be quite more um, in more conflict with humans. But these bears sometimes need a place to go. This is also true for orphan cubs. Now I would say that other solutions should always be searched for first. Um, I think taking a species from the wild should be the absolute last resort. However, I know that these conflicts often end with bears being killed and I think if they were going to be kept in captivity that can be preferable to, to death. They also obviously get to provide people a chance to look at them and learn about them but if you can't keep an animal well in captivity at a high level of welfare then it shouldn't be kept in captivity and I think every person who comes to us you need to make up your own mind um, if you think this is okay or this is not okay. But don't make your own mind up just by looking at an area. There, you know, every zoo needs to have some form, if it's granted, has to have some form of education. There are people around to ask, you know, keep asking these questions. Are they doing studies on um, the animal to, to be able to prove that they are providing a high welfare um, habitat? And yeah, we don't have polar bears uh, at Chester Zoo, but if we ever did, we would have to look into many, many features. Uh, we would never go back to how 
was our polar bear called Punch. We would never be keeping polar bears in conditions that they were all these many, many years ago. We don't do elephant rides. We don't do chimpanzee tea parties. These are all things that are a history of the zoo. And we need to look back on and go, right, that was not done well. But people are learning every day. Have, um, behaviors are changing. Uh, the way that we look after these animals need to keep it going. Looking at things like elephants, though, we do have a big, a big herd of elephants, and in the wild, you know, these elephants are going to be living in these massive, complex family groups. It's going to be the mothers, it's going to be their offspring, and that's going to extend to sisters and aunts and grandmothers. And when you watch elephants in the wild, it, you can see that these groups allow for crucial skills to be passed down from one generation to the next. These elephants express social, social bonding through tactile and vocal communication. They co-parent. And these multi-generation herds are vitally important. And then again, I can only speak to Chester, but that is how our herd live together. So at the moment, we've got six elephants, and they're known as the highway family. And we've got our oldest and only unrelated Maya as the sort of unofficial grandmother. Uh, the younger elephants absolutely love her. You'll see them sort of playing with her, and she sort of has a nice sort of grown-up role, a stabilizing effect, I think you'd call it, uh, on, on the family. And then there's Sindara and our only full-grown male, Anvo. So he's our bull elephant. And he spends some of the day with the family, but he also gets a lot of time by himself because in the wild, a male elephant would be the, the big herd. They'd only be sort of checking in. And that's how we want to keep it here at the zoo. We've also got the three kids. Um, we've got Indali, who turned four yesterday. Uh, Anjan, who is our young male. And we've got baby Reba, who's going to be turning a year old in February. And anyone coming to the zoo can go up and look at our elephants, and you can see that they are acting as wild as they can be. There is no zoo in the world who's going to be able to create a true wild experience, like you said before. Um, but we need to try and get as close to it as possible. So one of the best things is keeping them in their family groups, keeping it as natural as possible so that they can enrich their own lives by, you know, the kids are running around, they're playing, they're jumping in the water, but they're not forced into the water. They can go wherever they want to in their, in their habitat. They can go and have a lie down if they want to. They can go, sometimes it annoys the public, but unfortunately they can, they can go and disappear for a couple of hours if they want some time by themselves. They don't always have to be on show. Uh, the animals can have that choice where they go. Normally they will be outside, they like being outside and we provide a lot of their enrichment outside as well. So our keepers must, and they do work tirelessly to make sure that these elephants have appropriate enrichment. So that could be moving the elephants from different sections of their habitats to keep them exercised. Uh, throughout the day, they have different water features. We have water hoses, which we can turn to make sort of sprinklers. So it's like if it's raining outside, even when it's hot, they still have water whenever they want it. They, the keepers go and build mini browse forests outside the elephants come and they have great joy knocking all of them down and they get that once or twice a day. Food is hidden under the ground, it's hidden in the walls of their habitats. Um, they just need to keep keep coming up with new, uh, new ways to keep these animals entertained. Uh, and that's why we have our own elephant team. It's not just uh, our general hoopstock team, uh, which, which is broken up into individual sections like rhinos, giraffes, akapi, and, and so on. But the elephant team um, is it, a very big job with these animals continuously every day. Um, so they have some very specialist keepers in it. Now, 
even though this is not a wild experience, it doesn't mean that they're having a negative experience. Our elephants are not dealing with threats that their wild cousins are. There are no predators. They don't have to suffer from the effects of habitat loss. They're not persecuted by humans, uh, who humans persecute them for breeding. They might um, chop down a section of forest that's been used by generations of elephants and build a village there. The elephants might kind of destroy the village. Um, obviously there'll be retaliations. Our elephants have never had to deal with anything like that. Mm. And we are using these elephants to create an awareness that many wild populations are really struggling. They are endangered and we want to change that. But we also want to make it aware that not all elephants in captivity are treated equal. Not all zoos are the same and you must be very careful choosing which businesses to support. Um, but one of the best, and I, it's something I'm always talking about with our elephants, one of the best, most beneficial effects of having these elephants at the zoo has been um, that we hope to monitor them. So we've been looking at sleep patterns, uh, we've been monitoring social behaviours, we've been taking samples of stress and reproductive hormones to see how social events such as deaths, births, transfers to other herds um, affects the overall health of our herd. And if we're combining these studies, we one day would like to come up with what the ideal social competition for herds kept in captivity is. And then we can look at enforcing this around the world to make sure that if it's not optimum conditions, elephants are kept in captivity, simple as. And in talking about Andali, because it was her birthday yesterday, she's going to be one of our biggest, biggest success stories at the zoo. Because at Chester, we have a massive campaign where we're trying to combat a awful virus that affects elephants, which is known as EEHV. So if that is, if I remember correctly, it's the elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus. And that is a virus that has been identified as one of, the, one of the major causes of death of elephants in the zoo and in the wild. And EHV is present in almost all Asian elephants, but it's only developing into an illness in some animals. And we don't really know why that is. Um, but it is a massive uh, threat to the long-term future of Asian elephants. And I think we all, at the moment, we, we all have a deep understanding of how a virus can impact a population. Um, and how it can affect us. So the work we're doing here at the zoo, it just couldn't be done out in the wild. We didn't have these elephants in captivity. For example, when Indali contracted the virus, her keepers and the vets were able to detect it uh, earlier than ever before. And that's all down to our daily health checks that are performed by the staff, um, thanks to our high-tech on-site blood testing techniques. And once they detected this virus, uh, they began treatments before Indali even showed any outward sign of illness. Now, that's not going to be a diagnosis that is possible to achieve in the wild because of how fast acting the virus is. Um, if wild elephants are given treatments when symptoms occur, well, in many cases, that's just simply going to be too late. But Indali was able to make a full recovery. It involved two weeks of round-the-clock care. She had nine anesthetic uh, procedures. She had blood plasma transfusions, interferon therapy, uh, antiviral medications. She had a whole lot of intravenous fluids given to her, but the end result is that she's still here. Uh, she can play with her little cousin and her little sister. And we need to keep this going so that we can then carry this on later with wild elephants. Our, our overall dream would be that we can come up with a vaccine that we can then eradicate this virus and just make it a problem 
a problem of the past for elephants in zoos and in the wild. And again, no, these elephants are not in the wild. No, we can't um, replicate all the things that we would like to do, but it might be the one thing that saves the species. That's that's a really comprehensive and important answer and a lot of really good points in there. Um, and hopefully, again, people listening to the podcast can, can learn a lot about why you keep megafauna in in captivity uh, through that answer. Very good. Um, I think this is going to be has to be one of the last questions because I'm conscious of your your time constraints today. Um, but there there are many unethical zoos and so so called animal sanctuaries that aren't really sanctuaries around the world. Um, as you said, a big grey area. But as you said earlier, Chester Zoo does have a very good reputation for its ex situ conservation work and a, and a very good reputation in general um, for every reason you've listed in the last 35 minutes or so. But could you kind of touch briefly on a on a sp- one specific species at Chester Zoo and explain what the zoo is doing uh, to kind of help in efforts to conserve it in the wild? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different species that I love talking about. Um, but I, think, I suppose the one that sticks in my mind after you talk about James and Wender, he obviously is looking after the northern white rhino, the last two. We have a big project with the eastern black rhino. So that is um, a species that sadly has declined more than 95% in Africa over the last 100 years. And that is due to the global surge in poaching for their horns. Now, the stub book is managed here at the zoo by our CEO, Mark Pilgrim, and he manages the population in all we are zoos. And we've got around ooh, 10 individuals here at Chester. We actually just had a new baby born in the last lockdown, which is very, very exciting, even though I've not seen her yet. She's been hidden by her mum. But um, as of 2018, European population of beast black rhinos stood at around 92 individuals and we've had a steady growth rate of around 4% in the last five years. Now, like I said a little bit before talking about the importance of genetics, we have around 10% of the global population of eastern black rhinos in zoos and that's going to be a huge amount of potential genetic diversity that has been lost in wild populations. When we think about uh, Wanda, uh, just 12 years ago, rhinos have been poached to extinction. They, they did not exist in Rwanda. And that's why we're so thrilled that in 2019, we were able to be part of the largest ever translocation of rhinos from Europe to Africa. So there are now these black rhinos back in Rwanda. We took five rhinos from zoos. We've moved them into, well, temporary sort of bomas in Africa, where they remained for three weeks to ensure they had time to climatize. And then they were steadily released into larger sanctuaries before being put back into the wild. And they've been introduced to several other rhinos that were moved from South Africa in 2017. So all this, all these new um, genes are going back into the wild. And although that, that does not mean the, the work has ended. That means you're going to have to keep supporting these projects. Uh, you're going to have to look at their health. You're going to have to uh, support the ranger teams who are looking after them. Because again, if you put rhinos into Rwanda, there's going to be threats that um, haven't been seen since uh, 2012. Sorry, you know, poachers might suddenly see that as a new, a new resource of rhino horn haven't been able to get for the last couple of years. 
So poaching remains a key threat for these rhinos, and it is going to be a conservationist battle to end rhino losses. We need to maximise the population growth. Um, and I, I think James Wender has said in the past that education is important, um, financial supporting is important, but the number one um, thing that's going to stop rhinos from going extinct is just to stop the poachers getting on that. It's a very important thing. Now, we can't, we don't have rangers here that can go down and, uh, and guard these rhinos. That all is down to the people who live in these countries, not just rhinos, but all, all, all around the world, the rangers who um, are protecting these animals. We need to support them in any way we can, but often that is going to be using uh, financial support. And one day, hopefully, we will be able to make the black rhino not critically endangered. That's amazing. Yeah, um, I'm really glad you talked about that particular species. It's it's one of my favourites. I've always uh, loved rhinos and kind of mm-hmm. only a few years ago when I was, you know, I don't know, maybe, um, I think probably when I was a, a child, I kind of discovered about subspecies, you know, that there's not just rhino, there's northern white and eastern black and all, the, all these different species of rhino. Um, and yeah, very, very interesting kind of learning about those. Um, but yeah, really good species and important. Less than a thousand now, I believe. Sorry? Less than a thousand eastern black rhinos. Oh. Well, yeah, it is, it is scary when you, when you think about that. It was um, quite emotional uh, talking to James about, you know, just the people just don't realise that the two, there's two northern white rhinos left on the planet, both female, um, and then the only hope of ever establishing a population is some, uh, you know, some frozen um semen from the last male um Mm -hmm. sitting in a lab somewhere and that's that's quite you know emotional to talk about the fact that it's it's just um there's so few of of certain species left um i think kind of just quickly before we move on i just want to explain to my listeners who wouldn't have caught that little uh reference in your your speech there but um is it a, a boma did you say? Boma, yeah, sorry. Um, it's it's just a, a small enclosure, um, enclosure that you can sort of keep keep the animals in. Sometimes you'll put an animal in there when you move it from one site to another. Um, but, but it's sort of a, a small enclosed habitat where you would keep an animal temporarily before moving them on to somewhere else. Yeah, cool. Thanks for explaining that. I've uh, I came across them first, I think, in a book by Lawrence Anthony about um, the Elephant Whisperer. Um, mm-hmm. Really great book, really great book, uh, but very interesting to learn about kind of how they were built and uh, how the elephants actually in that particular story um, completely demolished them within about a day, I think. Um, just yeah. smashed through. They were so so traumatised at the beginning of that, uh, that project that he pioneered uh, that they smashed through electric fences to, to get out, which is, is quite incredible um, if you think about it. But Kind of, we're we're getting to uh, a decent time now, and I think I've I only had one other question that you actually answered brilliantly at the beginning, um, within another question. So so that's really good. Um, but before we finish, we're just going to do a little quick fire round. So these are just kind of four quick questions. Um, so first off, what's your favourite animal? You started hard. I know, um, I know it's a it's a tricky one. I think my favourite animal changes depending on the people I'm talking to. Uh, I, the one I've always loved has been the orca. I love I love marine um, animals, particularly cetaceans, which we don't work with here at the zoo. But um, 
every time I talk to a new person, I think it, it changes. At the moment, it might be my favorite animal in the zoo is gharials, just because we've got our new exhibit, Monsignor Forest, that's just opened. And we've got two gharials there, and it's not a species I've ever seen before. So at the moment, it's going to be gharials in the zoo. Where, where's somewhere you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you kind of really feel at home in a, in a green space? I have been moving around quite a lot. So before this year, when I started working at Chester Zoo, every six months I was moving from one place to another. Um, I think my longest sort of experience in nature was either down in Cornwall, which is absolutely amazing. I love being as close to the coast as possible. Uh, or maybe the, uh, on the Sunday Islands in Australia. Some brilliant, beautiful beaches there. Watching the reef is all being destroyed and disappearing, but it's still quite beautiful. Do you have a conservation hero? I do, I've quite a few. I suppose the one that sort of inspired me, and it probably inspired so many people, but there's of course David Attenborough is the one who, uh, watching his documentaries, was David Sport inspiring. Um, he's still doing, he's still inspiring me every time he brings out a new, new program, but I'm also very lucky that where I'm working, I've got educational um, support from my team and watching them teach, watching them work is really inspiring. I've got all these amazing keepers who are introducing animals back into the wild. Um, and then I've got the science team, you know, the study they're doing, all, all the research that's going on, what they're publishing, um, which really brings out uh, new studies, new behaviors that we've never seen before. And, we have no idea how they can be applied further down the line and if they, they might even be the key to saving some species. So I'm always inspired by all these people that I'm working with. And last off, how do you take your coffee? I take it frequently. Um, maybe just a bit of oat milk in it, but as much coffee as possible. I'm drinking coffee right now, actually. So I think, I mean, I think we can kind of wrap it up there, but before we finish, I just want to ask where can people find you? What are your social media and online handles and how can people get in touch with kind of the projects you're involved with? Uh, well, the, the best way to follow what my team is doing is, um, I don't think we're on Instagram yet, but we've got at learn at CZ, which is a bit confusing to say, but it's easier when you see it written down. Um, you can also follow Act for Wildlife, which we talks about a lot of the projects we're doing out in the field, just uh, Chester Zoo. You can find that on loads of social media. You get all the baby animal news. And uh, uh, for me, which I often will be posting uh, photos that I take around the zoo and on, on some of the sort of projects that I'm involved in, uh, that's just at Cunning Wildlife. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, well, if you if you give me a, an email with some of those links uh, that you said were quite hard to say, and I'll, uh, I'll link it all down in the description and let people direct people to check those out. And that's really uh, great. So all there's left to say is thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a fascinating discussion. I've been wanting to get zoos and the, the subject of captive animals uh, and in and exit to conservation on the podcast for a really long time. No, thank you for having me. It's been brilliant to talk about it. Thanks again to Alex for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media and various projects will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring coffee from Steampunk. As I said at the beginning, Steampunk did send me some coffee, but a company sending me coffee uh, will never influence my decision to feature them on the podcast if they don't line up with my values. 
Luckily, these folks are really great and their values really line up with my own. They are another company that prefers to use direct trade method. This means that they're paying around 10 to 16 times the coffee commodity market price and dealing directly with the suppliers. Recently, I've been looking for this on coffee companies' websites and I prefer its fair trade certification. There'll be a post on Instagram later in the week explaining what direct trade is and a bit about the risks and benefits of using it as a trading model. Steampunk is also on a journey to make their packaging eco-friendly and I was delighted to find out that my coffee arrived in Natureflex cellophane bags which are certified home compostable and a box made of FSC certified cardboard. All the details of the particular coffee I'm drinking which came from the Santa Ana region of El Salvador will be over on our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and in the description down below. Now this podcast is hosted and produced by me and I don't earn anything from it. Having companies send me coffee is great and I really really appreciate it but I'd love to support small independent companies more financially. I'm currently raising some money through my Kofi page to support small coffee growing communities and small coffee companies. If you'd like to help me help these people and groups, please consider supporting me on Kofi. You can find me through the link in my Instagram bio and the description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on a wide range of listening platforms, including Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.